Hello, and welcome to Primary Care Anywhere, a resident-led podcast out of the University of Utah Internal Medicine Program. My name is Matt Christensen. I'm one of the chief medical residents, and I'll be your host today. Today, we're going to talk about obstructive sleep apnea, or OSA, and we'll get started off with a case. Your first patient today is Mr. Homer Simpson, a 44-year-old gentleman with hypertension, obesity, and hyperlipidemia, who's here for his annual exam. He has no concerns. He reports no changes in his health. But upon catching up with him, you do learn that he was recently rear-ended at a stoplight with no injuries. Upon learning more about this, you come to learn that he actually fell asleep at the stoplight, which is why he was rear-ended. Given his comorbidities, this does concern you for OSA, and you dive deeper into this. Today, we're going to hear first from Dr. Alicia Bowles, PGY2, about screening and prevention, followed by Dr. Alex Ryden, PGY1, about diagnosis of OSA. And we'll wrap up with a talk about different treatment options from Dr. Eric Tatro, PGY2. All right, let's dive in. Hi there, I'm Alicia, and I'm going to talk about screening and prevention of obstructive sleep apnea, or OSA. Although the USPSTF has stated that there is limited high-quality research to recommend routine screening, the American Academy of Sleep Medicine recommends asking all adults about their sleep quality as a part of routine health maintenance visits. This is because there are studies out there showing that only 1 in 50 patients with symptoms suggestive of OSA is evaluated and treated. This leaves a whole lot of undiagnosed cases. Also, prevalence is increasing due to the world's increasing rates of obesity. Alright, so who should be screened for OSA? We should consider screening those with risk factors. First and foremost, those that are obese, in particular with BMIs greater than 35. I would also consider screening patients of Eastern Asian descent for they have a risk for OSA at lower levels of obesity compared to other racial groups. And this is because of differences in facial bone structure. Other risk factors include those with a family history of OSA, as well as those with co-occurring conditions. And when I say this, I'm talking about conditions like congestive heart failure, AFib, stroke, type 2 diabetes, treatment-resistant hypertension. Um, A good way to actually remember these co-occurring conditions is the acronym HEARTS. H for heart failure, E for elevated blood pressure, A for AFib, R for resistant hypertension, T for type 2 diabetes, and S for stroke. This was developed by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, um, and they say that we should screen for OSA annually in all adult patients who have hearts. I'd like to briefly talk about symptoms that should also trigger screening. This includes loud bothersome snoring, witnessed episodes of apnea, choking, gasping during sleep, excessive daytime sleepiness. Um, Some symptoms that are not as often thought of, though, include complaints of drowsy driving, morning headaches, decreased concentration or mood. And so those are other symptoms to consider. You should also consider screening all commercial truck drivers, public transit operators, and airline pilots given the public risk in the setting of potential accidents that can occur due to the effects of untreated OSA in these individuals. So now that we know who to screen for OSA, how do we actually do it? One way to do this is by incorporating sleep questions within the review of systems. You can ask a patient, are you experiencing 
daytime sleepiness or are you dissatisfied with your sleep? And if they answer yes, you can then use a screening tool to better assess for OSA. One of the most common screening tools out there is the Stop Bang Questionnaire. Uh, This was developed by an anesthesiologist in Toronto, originally used in the perioperative setting, but it's now used for the general population. It's actually an acronym, S for snoring, T for tiredness, O for observed events of apnea, P is for blood pressure, B is for BMI greater than 35, A is for age greater than 50, N is for neck circumference greater than 40 centimeters, and then G for gender, um, in particular males. And you can get one point for each of these, and a score of three or higher actually has a sensitivity of 84% for predicting OSA. It's important to note, however, that this questionnaire is... It's a good screening tool, but one cannot diagnose OSA solely based on using this tool. And this is because although the sensitivity is good, the specificity is quite low. It's in the 40s. I'd like to finally talk a little bit about the prevention of OSA. The best way to prevent it is to try to get patients to a healthy weight. And so for our overweight patients, focusing on dieting and exercising to lose weight Um, We now know that weight gain over time is associated with an increased incidence of OSA. And those with mild OSA can actually achieve remission just by losing weight. So look into what um, comprehensive lifestyle intervention programs are offered at your institutions. For example, if you're at the VA, consider referring your obese patients to the MOVE program. At my clinic at the University of Utah, we have a referral program called the New You, um, where anyone with BMI greater than 30 can be referred into this program. And that is all I have for the screening and prevention of OSA. You suspect obstructive sleep apnea and now you want to get a formal diagnosis. You have a couple options to do so. Regardless of which option you pick, the bottom line is obstructive sleep apnea requires a sleep study to get a diagnosis. There are two different kinds of studies that you can get. The first of which is the Home Sleep Apnea Study, or HSAT, which involves equipment that the patient takes home and self-applies that monitors pulse oximetry, chest movements, and respirations. This is compared to the formal lab study or polysomnography testing that's done at a sleep lab. Generally speaking, the home sleep study is actually more than good enough to diagnose sleep apnea in most patients, especially patients who have a fairly standard presentation. It will record apneic events without any issue and it will allow you to make the diagnosis of sleep apnea. Most patients prefer it and it can be very useful in resource-poor settings where a sleep lab may not be accessible. The downsides, of course, are that not every insurance unfortunately covers it. It can be very dependent on what coverage the patient has, and it also is not useful if the patient is unreliable or unable to apply the device themselves. You also might want to consider a formal sleep study if there is concern for a complicated diagnosis. This would include somebody who might have other reasons to desat, including heart failure or COPD, and this can also include somebody who might have a suspected alternative diagnosis like narcolepsy. Alternative reasons for DSATs at night are not contraindications to a home sleep study, but can alter the results and so are important to keep in mind. 
The other benefit of a formal lab study is that if the diagnosis is made, the lab could potentially titrate CPAP in lab overnight on the same night the diagnosis is made. If it is a patient who will require significant CPAP titration, this can obviously give you a head start in their treatment, but we'll talk about that more with the treatment section. Okay, so you've now made the diagnosis. They are back from the sleep lab and you have the report in hand. What do the different numbers and abbreviations mean? So you will see one of two different indices used. The first is the apnea hypoapnea index. This is typically used with the formal lab study and it represents the number of apneic or hypoapneic episodes per hour of actual sleep. The REI, or Respiratory Event Index, is the number of episodes per hour of recording, and this is used with the home sleep study because you don't necessarily know if the patient was asleep when an event is recorded because you're not actually watching them sleep. Now, what are apneic and hypoapneic events? How are those defined? Apneic events typically represent no breathing at all for greater than 10 seconds, while hypnoapic events represent reduced flow for 10 seconds with 3 to 4% or greater desaturation, or alternatively awakening or increased agitation during sleep. The 3 to 4% is lab dependent. 4% has a higher association with cardiovascular risk, but 3% allows you to pick up more possible sleep apnea patients who might benefit from treatment. It's something worth keeping in mind if you have the choice of labs for sleep apnea patients, as it could very easily influence their diagnosis. Getting back to apneic and hypoapneic events, when you're looking at the report, the number of events will determine the severity of obstructive sleep apnea if present. Greater than or equal to 5 apneic events, but less than 15 is mild. Greater than or equal to 15, but less than 30 is moderate. And greater than or equal to 30 is severe, with obstructive sleep apnea syndrome being greater than or equal to 5 apneic events with daytime sleepiness. The last thing worth discussing when making the diagnosis for obstructive sleep apnea is when to involve a sleep specialist. Generally for sleep apnea patients who have classical presentations, uh, no sleep specialist involvement is needed. However, if somebody has concern for more complex forms of sleep disorder, such as narcolepsy or central sleep apnea, or you were worried that their desaturation might interfere with the diagnosis, then a sleep consult can give you more appropriate testing parameters for the sleep study. So it might be worth considering at that point. Hello, I'm Eric Tatro, PGY2 Internal Medicine, University of Utah. So let's talk about treatment of OSA. Quick anecdote, grew up listening to the absolutely deafening sound of my father snoring from across the house. When he finally started using CPAP, life changing for our family, especially my poor mother who was finally started sleeping. Fast forward 25 years, I'm in the office with a patient. Okay, how do I start talking to them about treating their OSA? Always start with shared decision making. This is crucial, especially because which patients are you going to treat with obstructive sleep apnea? Well, it turns out that it's important that we do not routinely recommend CPAP in asymptomatic patients. Why? Because randomized trials of CPAP have actually shown that non-sleepy patients or those without symptoms, even if they have moderate to severe sleep apnea, actually have no reduction in risk for cardiovascular events. Um, it's important to focus specifically on those with daytime sleepiness, regardless of the severity, especially if they've had an recent MVA or a near-miss motor vehicle accident. It's important to balance the treatment of their symptoms also considering the inconvenience of the therapy. It's not fun to wear one of these machines if you or a loved one or a partner that you 
has had to use one, you know that it's inconvenient, dries out the nostrils, they deal with claustrophobia, and compliance can be a real issue. So it's important, if possible, to have the bed partner there to help buy in because it turns out that partner support is a huge predictor for treatment adherence and sleep quality. Okay, so what is the role of other treatment modalities? Well, of course, as always, we focus on lifestyle intervention. Weight loss, randomized controlled trials have actually shown that this can reduce severity of symptoms and also have a synergistic effect if you combine CPAP, weight loss, diet, exercise, behavioral modifications. Obviously, that's best. So what about the role of position alterations? And actually, up to one-third of mild to moderate patients with sleep apnea have are position dependent. Something simple could be wearing a tennis ball or even a backpack or a foam device to sleep. Yes, sounds totally uncomfortable. I would hate to sleep like that, but hey, if it works and you avoid the CPAP machine. So then we enter the realm of how do we actually initiate the therapy of CPAP? So remember that this actually is the first line therapy for those who are at moderate to high risk OSA. CPAPs come often with an auto titrate feature. And remember that uncomplicated OSA, this is actually an effective alternative to a formal overnight lab titration. Auto titration is actually equal to fixed pressure CPAP in regarding adherence and reduction of patient symptoms. The nice thing about this as well is this will actually automatically adjust if your patient's pressure requirements change, for instance, if they gain weight. Also, as a quick heads up, remember that auto-titration CPAP is contraindicated in those with chain stokes breathing or advanced pulmonary disease. Remember that when you're prescribing this, the prescription should include the pressure setting, the mass type, tubing, filters, mass straps, etc. Okay, how much CPAP is actually enough? There's actually a linear relationship between the hours of use of CPAP and the improvement of sleep and quality of life and actually blood pressure reduction. The gold standard is at least four hours of adherence per night for at least 70% of nights. This seems perhaps arbitrary, but actually the CMS and insurance require documentation of at least this level of adherence in the first 90 days of use for them to continue to pay for this therapy. Okay, that's all well and good, but how do we actually have our patients go through with this and use it? As we've noticed as physicians, it's not easy to keep a patient compliant, especially with a therapy that can be this annoying and cumbersome. So the first one to two weeks are absolutely crucial. The patient has to buy into the perceived benefits. You have to schedule early follow-up within these first two weeks. Have them bring their device, their mask. You can troubleshoot, go over questions and concerns. This is going to be crucial. And remember that, unfortunately, as with a lot of things, patients overestimate their use. And so you can actually query the data stored on the device if they bring it in. Some of the biggest obstacles that your patients will have early on are poor mask fit, allergic reaction to straps, congestion, and airway drying. Some easy ways to overcome these are changing the mask, making sure it fits, like I said, nasal steroids, increasing the humidity. If those things aren't working. Recognize there could be other things, such as denial of your patient not really believing that they need to treat this 
Also, remember the indispensable role of education. Educate, educate, educate. Also, remember how important it is to have social support. This is huge. Inquire about what kind of support they have at home. Remember that evidence actually supports daily feedback systems, such as the app. A lot of these CPAP machines, in fact, most nowadays come with apps with education, feedback, telemonitoring, auto-messaging apps to help with compliance with this stuff. If your patient's struggling with claustrophobia, have them sit down and watch TV with it on to distract them. They can get used to the auto-titration, the noise, Start with no pressure and slowly advance. Okay, so how do you actually choose a CPAP mask? Remember, discomfort is a huge reason for non-compliance, so maximize your comfort. You can use nasal pillows. They fit under the nose. There's differences in anatomy, facial hair. Even edentulist patients can have harder fits, so be aware of that. People that are mouth breathers learn to nose breathe can be difficult, but chin straps can be used for this. Oronasal masks are actually should be one of your last options because they have worse outcomes. So a big thing here to talk about is what about mandibular advancement devices? You've probably heard of these MADs or seen them advertised by dental offices. There's a lot of info out there. Remember that bottom line, these mandibular advancement devices are not a replacement. They're less effective at normalizing AHI or the number of apneic or hypoapneic events, but they can be effective for mild to moderate sleep apnea. Remember these are contraindicated with TMJ, it can make it worse. So make sure that if your patient do does get this device because they've failed CPAP or another reason, you gotta follow up. There's honestly a pretty limited role for surgical options. Nasal septoplasty can be indicated, or if a patient has an anatomic deficit, such as na needing nasal septoplasty or retrognathia. That could be an indication for surgical intervention. So just rounding out, last thing here. What do you do when it's the middle of the night and you just got an admit? The patient remarks that they have severe sleep apnea. We've all been through this setting. Ideally, they have brought their home machine and home mask and they know their home settings. But let's be real. How often does that happen? We know that it's important that even inpatient, they should be using CPAP. Actually, patients have shown that they have increased perioperative complications in surgical patients if they do not use CPAP when they use it at home. So prescribe it, and if you need to, use auto titrate with a wide pressure range, like five to 20 centimeters of water. Okay, so last thing, how do you prepare a patient for the therapy. How do you troubleshoot? Remember again, education, education, education. Okay, that was a lot to digest. Quick summary. Number one, everyone with OSA needs to participate in lifestyle changes. Number two, sleepy patients with OSA need CPAP. Number three, try to increase compliance with education, get their partner to participate, early troubleshooting, and close follow-up. And last, CPAP is first line, but there are other therapies out there if they do not tolerate. Hope you enjoyed this quick summary of treatment of obstructive sleep apnea. Thanks. Awesome work, Alicia, Alex, and Eric. 
Let's take this information and apply it to our case. Remember, we were talking about Mr. Homer Simpson, a middle-aged obese male, with a recent MBC due to falling asleep at the wheel. His stop bang is 6, based upon snoring, daytime fatigue, hypertension, a BMI of 37, and neck circumference of 42. Since he has no heart or lung disease, you set him up for home sleep apnea testing, and his wife, Marge, assures you that she'll make it happen. A few weeks later, you get the results back, and he has an AHI of 55, consistent with severe sleep apnea, so you bring him in for return visits to discuss treatment options. He asks you about the MAD, or Maxillary Advancement Device, and you explain that that's not really a great option for him given his recent car accident. So he agrees reluctantly to try out the CPAP, and you send him home with an auto-titrating machine. A few weeks after that, you get a message in your inbox from his wife, Marge, who is so grateful to finally get a full night's rest without snoring, and you also hear that Homer is no longer falling asleep at the wheel. Great success. All right, let's back up and take a look at some key takeaways. Number one, you should suspect OSA with symptoms of snoring or fatigue. Number two, you should consider screening, especially in obese males, that is highly prevalent. Number three, you should do a home OSA test unless there's heart, lung, or brain disease. Number four, CPAP is really the way to go with treatment for severe disease or daytime fatigue. And number five, Oxygen alone doesn't help, especially with daytime fatigue, but the jury is a little bit out as if there are any other benefits. Thanks so much. This has been Primary Care Anywhere, and we'll see you next time.